As we continue our Harmony of the Gospels, we have three texts that our passage this morning is found in. Matthew 21, Luke 20, and Mark 11. Those references should be behind me. I'm going to read just a harmonized account of all three of those. So you can pick any one of those three and read along with me. This is an occasion in which the accounts are so very near to one another that I felt that we could just read one harmonized account of all three. So I'm going to read a harmonized, my own harmonized account of those three, but you could read from either Matthew 21, 23 through 27, Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 8, or Mark 11, verses 27 through 33. And they came again to Jerusalem, and he, on one of the days he was teaching and preaching the gospel, walking in the temple, the chief priests and scribes and elders came to him and were saying to him, tell us. But what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave to you this authority to do these things? Now having answered, Jesus said to them, I myself will ask you one thing, and you tell me, which if you tell me, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. The baptism of John was from where? From heaven or from men? Answer me. Now they were reasoning to themselves, saying, If we might say from heaven, he will say to us, for what reason then have you not believed him? But if we say from from earth or from from men, all people will stone us to death. They were afraid of the crowd, for they were all convinced that John was really a prophet. And having answered Jesus, they said, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither do I myself tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessings on this time of study together. Pray that you would guard me from error, that you would cause me to speak what is true and right. Pray that you would guide your church into all truth, and that we would see the glories of our Savior, Jesus Christ, all the more, even here in this conflict that was going on. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, last week we learned some further lessons from the fig tree, which was all leaves and no fruit. Remember, Jesus had cursed that fig tree, and its its position there, even as it's recorded in the Gospels, was meant to stand as a symbol for Jerusalem. For that was exactly how Jesus found the city, all leaves. No fruit. Had the appearance of a lot of activity, but no real substance to what was going on. When Jesus had entered into Jerusalem, and the day following his triumphal entry, remember as he enters in, he clears the temple of all of the bizarre that had been going on there. And he removes all the animal sellers and the money changers, and he restores the temple court to its proper use. It was not a place to make money or to extort people. It was a place that was to be for nations to come and pray. He said, this is my father's house, which is to be a house of prayer for all the nations. The religious leaders had been anxious to find Jesus. Remember, we're crescendoing closer and closer towards Jesus' crucifixion. And they wanted to find him. They had sent out words, word previous to these events telling others that they were looking for him and if he came up during Passover to let them know about him. But now that Jesus is right here, right in front of them, 
they can do nothing but stand by and watch as he exercises a completely unique authority. He cleanses what he refers to as his father's house. His, he says, this is my father's house. And the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and priests, all wanting to capture Jesus, but noticing his popularity with the people, think it better to collect themselves together and figure out what their next move really should be. Monday of the Passion Week comes and goes. We come to Tuesday morning. The disciples noticed that fig tree that Jesus cursed on the previous morning. Remember? We talked about this last time. It was withered from the roots up. They're amazed by it. Jesus, at that moment, is astonished by their astonishment. Right? He tells them, have faith in God. Pray without doubting, believing that you'll receive what you ask for. And withering fig trees are just the tip of the iceberg. You could say to this mountain, be uprooted and cast into the sea and God will bring it to pass. We must not allow our prayers to be hindered by small thoughts of God's ability or small thoughts of God's willingness to do good for His children. We're called in that text by Jesus' instruction. His disciples are called to pray trusting in the Almighty God. That the Almighty God is both able and willing to do good to His children. God has forever proven that, hasn't He? By giving us His own Son. How will He who has given His own Son not with Him also freely give us all things? And now, per His pattern, Jesus is coming back from the Mount of Olives, back into Jerusalem here on this Tuesday morning. He spent the evening out on the Mount of Olives, and Mark tells us that Jesus is walking through the temple. Luke tells us what He was doing while He was walking. Imagine this. He was teaching... And gospelizing. <laughs> the word euangelion is used here, the word for which we get evangel, the ev- or evangelism. Jesus is doing evangelism. He's sharing good news with people throughout the temple courts. So here we have Jesus, the Son of God, in God the Father's house, teaching and preaching the gospel. What a scene, right? Here we have the Son of God in His Father's house, preaching the gospel. Now, we don't have recorded what Jesus was saying. We just have this summary statement he was teaching and preaching. But I can guarantee you this, it was amazing. (laughs) It was absolutely amazing. Here is the Son of God preaching the gospel in the temple courts. God's plan is coming to pass. Jesus is presenting himself publicly before all of Israel. The king is present. And the question that comes to our mind is, how will his subjects respond? The king is present. He's in their midst. He's in the temple and he's teaching and preaching the gospel. How will his subjects respond to him? How will Israel respond to their Messiah? I wish I could say that everyone gladly received him. But sadly, those who should have been quickest to humble themselves and bow before Jesus and submit themselves to Jesus as the Messiah are the very ones found bolstering their position, readying themselves for conflict and a fight with Jesus. We're about to watch a full-on onslaught from the religious leaders. They come in cunning, they come in deception, and they come in an effort to trap and ensnare Jesus. 
Don't miss this. Don't miss these little narrative moments. I mean, here's a moment. Jesus is in the temple. He's preaching the gospel. He's teaching the people. This should be a moment of great celebration for the religious leaders. They should be in awe. They should be amazed. They should be bowing down and welcoming Jesus as the Prince of Peace. But instead, they come with questions meant to trip Him up. Instead of rejoicing that the Savior, their Savior was in their midst, they plotted and schemed to put Him to death. Instead of humbling themselves before their King, they arrogantly rejected Jesus and they crafted a hostile takeover. And they would spare no expense to accomplish their ends, even if it meant sacrificing every semblance of truth and every semblance of righteousness. They did not care. They had set their hardened hearts on a path, a murderous path, to try to do away with Jesus. In a sermon entitled, Handling Dishonest Questions, Handling Dishonest Questions, we'll consider four moments in this conflict between the Jerusalem religious leaders and Jesus. Each of these moments provide us with a lesson and how we ought to prepare ourselves when critics come with questions regarding our beliefs and our behaviors as followers of Jesus. I mean, certainly we who follow Jesus Christ ought not be surprised that we will find the world treating us in the very same way that they treated our Lord, our Savior. Right? If a people's king is mistreated by another person, then you can be sure that all subjects of that king will be treated similarly. And so we ought not be surprised. Jesus said in John fifteen twenty. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. Four moments, four lessons. Here's the four lessons. We'll look at them one by one. First of all, don't be surprised by intimidation. Don't be surprised by intimidation. Don't be surprised by intimidation. Secondly, be prepared for interrogation. Be prepared for interrogation. Third, consider wise reciprocation. Third, consider wise reciprocation. And fourth, expose heart and mind corruption. Expose heart and mind corruption. Four moments, four lessons, and we'll begin by considering our immediate demeanor when we're confronted by an imposing enemy. First of all, don't be surprised by intimidation. How do we find Jesus in this account? He's busy about ministry. Remember, Jesus is minding his own business. Or maybe better said, he's busy about his father's business. He's walking in the temple. He's teaching. He's preaching. He's not in the temple trying to pick a fight with the Sanhedrin. He's not there challenging the religious leaders to a, a game of Bible drill. He's not challenging them to some competition of miracle working. Right? He's not there trying to pick a fight with the religious leaders. He's there teaching and preaching the gospel. He's not orchestrating an overthrow of the political and religious leadership, although they will be going out the door eventually. It's only a matter of time. He's not doing any of those things. What is Jesus doing? He's walking, he's teaching, and he's preaching. He's caring for people. He's sharing God's love with people. He's telling them good news. Now, why spend time going over that? Well, I think it's an important context to note because sometimes we ourselves will find opposition in the strangest of moments, in the strangest of times, 
in times when we are not at all looking for conflict, not at all trying to upset the boat. We're just trying to live out a godly life in this world and tell other people the good news about Jesus. I mean, why are Christians persecuted the way they are? We're telling people about salvation. We're trying to help you. And meanwhile, why is it that so many try to find ill motives in us? It may come to us, this side of persecution and intimidation, it might come to us in the middle of an attempt to raise money for missions. It might come in the midst of trying to volunteer at a retirement community to help out with something there. Or maybe trying to start a homeless shelter or start a Christian club on a public school ground or start a homeschool cooperative or in the middle of trying to advance forward a Christian school. It may come while we're just living a righteous life at our workplace, you know, refusing to laugh at crude jokes and refusing to cut corners on the job and upholding ethical principles. In the midst of these sorts of things, where we're just doing what is good and right and should be just acknowledged as such. Strangely, it can be in the middle of these sorts of moments that intimidation will come our way. The point is that opposition is sure to come to those who pursue godliness and Christians, to Christians, has been granted not only to believe in Jesus' name, but to suffer for His sake. All who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. Here's Jesus, not trying to pick a fight with the religious leaders, but they've got one coming for Him. A gang comes up to Jesus to attempt to bully Him. The religious leaders, remember, stood by silently fuming as Jesus on the previous day had come into the temple and cast out all that junk that was there. He had performed healings on that previous day, and I'm sure their tempers flared as the children started singing praises to Jesus. The religious leaders, while they're anxious about the crowds, just cannot stand it any longer, and so they begin to hatch a plan. They will come as a united front against Jesus. They'll present a united front against this teacher from Galilee. They're going to come and put Jesus in his place. Don't miss this. The Jewish religious system was headed by the Sanhedrin, composed of 71 members. Those 71 members were taken from the chief priests, scribes, and elders. The very three descriptions given here in this text for this group of individuals that come to Jesus. It appears that this is some sort of contingency being sent as a delegation from the Sanhedrin to put some tough questions to Jesus. Now, there will be other questions that flow on, the, on top of this to come, some very specific questions that involve specific doctrinal differences even between the Sadducees and Pharisees and scribes and all the rest. But this first question that comes to Jesus is a question that all of them could agree on. A question regarding Jesus' authority. They come with a mission, and that mission is, we will discredit Jesus. We want to discredit this man. Can you imagine the moment? I mean, picture it. You know, there's a small little text. Please imagine with me for just a moment. Jesus is walking in the outer court of the temple. There he is teaching and preaching among the people. And then all of a sudden, a group of religious leaders come from across the courtyard, marching their way over to where Jesus is. This is planned. It's all on purpose. These religious leaders take a beeline to Jesus. And you have to understand the moment. You have to feel the intimidation in the air, right? There's this one teacher from Galilee amongst all of these religious elites. And they're coming to try to put Jesus 
in his place. These evildoers find solace in numbers, and they hope to push Jesus around. Friends, you may encounter small conflicts throughout your life, and then there might be other moments in which you feel like the whole world is against you. What do you do when that intimidation just starts to build, and the pressure is building, and there are many people united against you? Certainly, Jesus provides a perfect example of calmly engaging those who are trying to intimidate Him. One thing we need to remember is if God is for us, who can be against us? You may wish to learn from Athanasius. He's a Christian who stood for God's Word amidst many foes in his own day. He was raised up by God to defend the deity of Jesus Christ against the Arians that were in existence during his day. And because of his fearless independence and, uh, um, in, in, and immovable fidelity to the Scriptures, he's famously remembered as Athanasius contra mundum. Athanasius against the world. There was a time there in which he was upholding the deity of Christ and in which it seemed that almost all voices around him were denying it. And so we remember men like him who stood amidst an intimidating crowd. You may want to crawl into a hole. You may want to run away. You may want to just throw your, your arms up in utter surprise. But we must not be surprised by intimidation. First John 3.13 Do not be surprised, brethren, when this world hates you. First Peter 4.12 Beloved, do not be surprised as though at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing happening to you. The one thing we ought not be is surprised at moments of conflict from this world. In fact, Jesus said that there's blessing enduring persecution for his name's sake. Obviously, a difference between being punished for something wrong you've done. But when you actually stand for the gospel and stand for the truth of Jesus Christ and encounter persecution, Jesus says, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say falsely all kinds of evil against you. Because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, when we encounter persecution as Christians, we're just identifying with a long line of godly men and women who have encountered persecution throughout this world. Some of those have gone before us. Some of those may be yet still to come. But we do know this, that we also identify with our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For this is the response, this is the welcome that he received. And if we're disciples of him, should we expect to receive any different treatment from this world? But this mob of religious leaders doesn't just come up to Jesus and like pick him up <laughs> and just escort him out of the temple. They can't risk that sort of force. I mean, there's all these people, right? Couldn't they all just pick Jesus up and throw him out of the city? They can't risk that because they know the popular support that's surrounding Jesus at this moment. So they have to try to show him to be a rebel, as a zealot, as insane, or self-absorbed, or a blasphemer, or a liar. They have to tarnish his perfect record. Kind of reminds us of the story of Daniel, doesn't it? Remember the idea is if we can just get something on Daniel to use against him, we can kick him out of this high position that he's been afforded in the kingdom. But they can't find anything. So what do they do? We've got to get the king to agree to a law whereby no one's allowed to pray except to the king's statue. And so they, they 
fabricate a situation by which they can try to tarnish this man's record. So here they come to Jesus. And they come in an intimidating way. Secondly, though, we need to be prepared for interrogation. They're not there just to show up and walk away. They come with questions. And don't miss this. They're clothing their hatred with questions. These questions are not from goodwill toward Jesus. They are ill-devised plans and plots that are being expressed in the garb of questions. These questions are pointed. These questions have purpose. These questions have been considered. They have been deliberated about. And they come to Jesus with questions. What they are is united in their hatred for Him. And they're going to present a series of specially prepared questions. But this first one is one that they all agreed on. And that is, how did He get His authority in the first place? You see, the Sanhedrin couldn't deal with Jesus head on. So, they ask Him a question of legality. They hope that they'll catch Jesus on a technicality. That's what they're after here. They're not like sitting there going, okay, Jesus, you taught this. Show me where that is in the Scriptures. They're not having a Bible study with Jesus. They're not having a discussion searching and examining the Scriptures daily with Jesus as He's teaching in the temple. They're not having that kind of discussion. They're also not questioning the reality of His miracles. hard thing about trying to question the reality of miracles is when dead people are walking around and you know people who are blind are seeing. It's kind of hard to doubt the reality of miracles. So there they are. They can't deal with either the truth of His teaching. They can't deal with the reality of His miracles. So what do they retreat to? Ah, we've got it. By what authority can he do these things? Has he gotten the proper permits? Has he gotten legal um, permission to go about doing what he's doing? You see, the Sanhedrin were a privileged class of teachers, and they localized and controlled power, religious power. And therefore, only those whom they had selected could be those who were doing the teaching And all of those who were doing the teaching were supposed to teach in accordance with the traditions that had been handed down to them by previous rabbis. So most teaching was all just a recitation of previous men's ideas on certain texts of Scripture. Now, tradition is one of those interesting things. Um, It's a wonderful thing when tradition is built upon truth. right? There's something good and solid about doing things that are right and good and biblical and righteous. But there's something horrible about tradition when it goes awry. When it's founded on untruths and lies and deceit. And when then those things get happen over and over and over again, it's very difficult to write. That is the very situation that Jesus comes into. The religious leaders have taught among, along a certain line and they see that Jesus is not teaching you know, along the party line here. He's not doing this the way that they do it. Where does he get this authority from? Who does he think he is? That's the question, right? Who do you think you are, Jesus? By what sort of authority can you do these things? Now, that interesting phrase there too, these things. What are they referring to? You've got these demonstrative pronouns referring to something. What is the these things? Well, certainly right at that moment he's teaching and preaching, so I think it absolutely encompasses that. But I think it's quite likely to think that it's also connecting back to the day's previous events, like... Casting out the money changers and the, all the, the bizarre that had gone on there in the outer court. They're saying, who gave you authority to do these things? The argument is not with what Jesus has done, but whether or not it was right for Jesus to do them. 
It seems similar to the objection that came to Jesus early in his ministry. Remember, he had a lot of conflict around the Sabbath. Right? So Jesus healed someone on the Sabbath, and their big issue is, it was the Sabbath? You healed someone on the Sabbath? You helped that person who couldn't walk, and you healed them, you gave them legs on the Sabbath? How dare you? Right? They care nothing about the man who's just been healed of his ailment. They care nothing about the people that have been touched by Jesus' ministry. Jesus shows the hypocrisy in their statements, right? He says, if one of your animals falls into a pit, will you just leave it there on the Sabbath? No, you'll rescue it out of the pit. And how much more valuable is a person than one of your animals? He shows their horrid hypocrisy. And don't miss this. The whole stage is set with this underlying premise that they're the ones that Jesus has to deal with. In other words, Jesus, you should have come to us first. You should have received your permit from us in order to do what you have done. They're standing in judgment over Jesus. They're saying that he needed their approval in order for him to go about his ministry. He doesn't have rabbinical support. No one within the Sanhedrin is vouching for Jesus. And therefore, Jesus, you are out of line. That's the argument. Think about that, just how arrogant it is. But then I wonder how often we fall into a similar trap. How often do men still still deal with Jesus in that way? putting themselves up as if they're judges and arbiters over Jesus. As if they're the ones in the high position considering the claims of Jesus rather than humbled before Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, hoping and praying that He will receive them. The truth is that Jesus is Lord whether you admit it now or not. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is now, Jesus' unique authority has been taken note of on numerous occasions. One particular one that comes to mind is when the Pharisees have issue with Jesus casting out demons, and they ask, by what authority is he doing this? And they claim that Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul. Who's Beelzebul? Well, that's a reference to Satan, right? To the devil. They're saying that Jesus is doing this by the power of the devil. Then Jesus responds, he's a multi-layered response, but... One of the things he says, well, what about your people who are casting out demons? Are they doing it by Beelzebul? You're not making that claim about them. And then secondly, he says, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Why would Satan cast out Satan? That's Jesus' point. He wouldn't be doing this. Why would he do that? He wouldn't. He exposes the problems with their argument. But Jesus had a direct and immediate authority because he's God. But since the Pharisees denied that fact... Any such claim would have been seen as an occasion of blasphemy, right? In their mind, Jesus is just a mere man. He's not fully man and fully God. He's just a mere man. So if they can get Jesus to say, I do it because I'm God. I have direct, implicit authority because of who I am. They would love for him to say that on this occasion because then they'll just bring up on charges of blasphemy and haul him off. But Jesus wasn't a mere man. He was the God-man. He was very truly man, and he was also very truly God. And so he had an authority, a unique authority, an immediate authority. He had the prerogative of God because he was. Yet this question posed on this occasion is handled in a very interesting way from Jesus. And it makes us kind of think about how do we prepare for questions that come from a world that is so antagonistic against Christ. 
You see, the specific issue of authority that's present in this text is here. It's a question about what makes someone able to do what you're doing, Jesus. What gives someone authority to teach or preach as you are? It makes me want to ask, just as a quick aside, just the question of authority even today. What, what grants someone authority to do Christian ministry? What does that look like? I mean, on some level, all of us who are Christians are engaged in ministry, right? And then yet we also make these distinctions regarding pastors and what are their credentials and how do those things work in ministry for the Lord? It's a, it's a good question and an honest question. I mean, are degrees required to serve the Lord? What qualifications are required? Is the is seminary training required for the pastorate? Well, let me just say this quickly. There is much good that can be had at a seminary, a biblically-based seminary, one that loves Jesus Christ. There can be much good that comes from the opportunity of going to seminary. But we have to beware of endorsing someone purely on the basis of diplomas or accolades. We can't allow these to unduly, our, unduly influence our perceptions and the ability of people to do ministry, Christian ministry. Remember, this is a case in point. Who are the people who are the accredited ones in this account? Who are the ones that are the accredited authorities in this account? The very ones rejecting Jesus, right? I mean, the very ones who are given all this quote, quote authority, who are uh, exercising control are the very ones who are denying Jesus. Where, where had their great learning landed them? You see, any old learning will not do. It doesn't just land you in truth just to learn stuff. There's a lot of people who become very, very well-educated criminals, right? <laughs> you can be super, super intelligent, but your heart be completely depraved and wicked. This is why the heart is so important in education. So we can't just base things on the basis of credentials or diplomas or accolades. We have to ultimately acknowledge that God is the one who prepares His servants for ministry and therefore we must hold the qualifications that He has given for leadership, not subtracting from them and not adding to them either. And then can I just also say, this is why it's so very important, moments like these and moments throughout church history and moments even today, it's why it's so very important that ultimately you follow spiritual leadership as much as they are biblical. As much as they uphold what the Bible teaches, you can be assured and confident that that leadership is godly. But where they push away from Scripture, be warned. Now, with the more general kind of question of how do we deal with questions in general, not just questions of authority, I think we should keep two things in mind. How do we deal with accusations or interrogations that come to us from people who aren't believers? How do we deal with those? Well, two things I want you to keep in mind. The first is this, that we are called, and you can say this in many different ways in the Scriptures, we're called to study to show ourselves approved. We're to be workmen who need not be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. We ought to live like the noble-minded Bereans who searched and examined the Scriptures daily. We ought to always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in us. Those are all different ways of saying, how do you prepare for questions? By knowing God's Word. You spend time with the Lord. You show yourself a workman who need not be ashamed, accurately handling, rightly dividing the word of truth. You show yourself one who is ready to give a defense. You're ready for moments like that. You prepare for the discussion before you get to the discussion. Right? As your hope that the first time you ever encounter the question of, 
is there a God, isn't when the question's asked there. But you have already considered that question thoroughly and are able to give a response and an answer to questions that come. This ongoing, loving, diligent discipline will certainly prepare us for answering questions and, and a whole multitude of interrogations that might come our way. We've been granted a relationship with God. Therefore, we ought to invest ourselves wholeheartedly in God's Word, what He's told us about Himself. He's given us His Word in a very special way. So we should be people who crave to read, study, memorize, meditate, and apply God's Word to our lives. Now, I say that's one element of this, because there's also another element of it that must not be neglected. And we have to hold these together. You know, no matter what we do, no matter how much preparation is done, we must always conduct ourselves in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. There's even examples that Jesus himself expressed this reality in Luke 12. He's talking to his disciples and he says this. Listen to this. And this is where he talks about interrogation in its most formal sense. Jesus is speaking to that reality here in Luke 12, 11 and 12. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense. When you are brought under interrogation and examination by the authorities, don't worry. Now, that's, that seems like, man, that's easier said than done, huh? So I'm being brought in front of councils and large groups of people where intimidation is just filling the room and I'm supposed to not worry? Jesus says, don't worry in such cases. And, and why? Does he say, because you've done a whole lot of work previous to this? That's not the statement he makes. He says, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. The history of the Gospel shows this to be the case. Consider how many times we read of Paul's defense before rulers and authorities in the Gospel of Acts. To mention another notable occasion for church history, how can we not mention the event that transpired in 1521 when Martin Luther made a defense of the Diet of Varms before so many enemies? He given a day, I can't, don't have time to go into the whole story, you, most of you know the famous story, but he's given a day to think about recanting from the writings that he has written and books that he has done and, and his beliefs regarding the gospel. And so he has this, this night to reflect upon this. And so he comes in the next day and has, has been uh, famously recounted by many. These are the statements that come from Martin Luther's lips. Unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, and not by popes and councils, which have so often contradicted themselves, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God, help me. Here we see in moments such as these, I think it is important that we that both of these realities are, are remembered. That... It is appropriate for us to be disciplined and diligent in our relationship with the Lord. And therefore, as a result, having answers to questions when they come. But simultaneously, we must not rest upon knowledge gained that way. We must continue to live our lives in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Holy Spirit is the one who changes hearts. My eloquence, your eloquence cannot change a heart. The Holy Spirit is the one that does that. So we must... Never use lack of preparation as an excuse for not standing. We must stand and depend upon the Holy Spirit in such moments. We also must not, vice versa, just go, oh, the Holy Spirit will just help me. I'm not going to do any study. <laughs> Either of those positions are wrong. The Scriptures call us to be workmen who need not be ashamed, accurately handling the Word of Truth, being ready to give a defense, and simultaneously we must be dependent upon the Holy Spirit to bring about the truth that needs to be, to, to be born on that very moment.
Third moment, third lesson for us to learn is this. To consider wise reciprocation. Consider wise reciprocation. Now, I had read this morning from Proverbs 26, and a thought-provoking proverb, because of not just what happens in verse 4, but the fourth one, but then the fifth verse as well. You have the phrase in verse 4, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be like him. Don't answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be like him. And then the next part of it says, Answer a fool according to his folly, that he won't be wise in his own eyes. That sounds strange, doesn't it? Don't answer him according to his folly so that you're not like him. Answer him according to his folly so he's not wise in his own eyes. How does that work? How do those Proverbs work together? Well, I think that Jesus gives us an excellent example of how this works. How does the first part of that proverb work? Do not answer a fool according to his folly or you will be also like him. Well, Jesus does not answer He doesn't provide them with a direct answer. (laughs) He doesn't answer their dishonest question with a direct answer. Remember, the chief priests and scribes and elders are interrupting Jesus while he's in the middle of ministry. He's weighing the pros and cons of how much discussion does he want to get involved in with them. Remember, this is one of the things we we have to struggle with, right? With time limitations. How much time do we spend on the person who has questions that are not really honest questions? compared with those who have honest questions. <laughs> we, I, I can only spend so much time in a day, right? How do we spend and allocate our time? How do we deal with distractions in ministry? What qualifies a question as a distraction? What makes a question dishonest? How do we determine that? Well, I think Jesus provides us with a brilliant way of determining it. It's by asking counter-questions, right? Asking counter-questions. Now, let me ask you this. Is there such a thing as a bad question? Is there such a thing as a bad question? Perhaps you've heard before, maybe you yourself have said before, that there is no such thing as a bad question. That simply is just not true. Let's just all admit it. There are bad questions. There are multitudes of bad questions. Now, I think the reason why we say things like that, especially from a teaching standpoint, is we want to encourage participation, right? And, you know, we're also concerned about our own face, that whenever we ask a question, we're already kind of taking a step out there, right? Because in that moment, we're admitting that we don't know something, right? That's if it's an honest question. We're admitting that we don't know something. And so, sometimes for, because we struggle with our own pride and arrogance, it's hard to ask questions. Because asking a question would imply that I don't know the answer to the thing I'm asking. right? Otherwise, why am I asking it? So, I think we say that kind of statement to try to encourage people to ask questions. We don't want them to be belittled. We don't want honest and genuine inquiries to be laughed at. We don't want that to happen. That really puts a squelch on all questions, doesn't it? If I was to ask a question right now, or when you were to ask a question right now, and everyone laughed at you, you probably would think twice about asking a question again, right? And everyone else in the room also would. So we say things like that. There's no bad questions. to try to encourage people to ask questions. But perhaps we should say better that as long as it's a genuine question, then it's a question that's worth being answered. There are a lot of questions that are bad. There are worthless questions. There are incorrectly phrased questions, questions which you can't answer because of the way they've been constructed. There are questions resting on false biases. There are questions that are rooted in fallacies. There are loaded questions, which no matter how you answer it, you're in trouble. Right? All sorts of things of this nature. And then there are the big category of disingenuous questions. There are dishonest questions. And that's the one that's being asked on this occasion. 
Any question that's, that's uh, put forward with the intention to harm or disparage or insult or entrap may not be worthy of any reply at all. Why, this is the point, why dignify such a question by even attempting to give it an answer? Why dignify someone who's just trying to play light with the truth? Why even give them any amount of ammo to work with? The religious leader's question here is really absurd when you think about this further. I mean, hadn't Jesus' authority already been proved over and over again? Nothing about Jesus' activity was, would, would, you know, back some sort of claim that he was acting of his own accord and he had rashly assumed some authority that was not his own. Will they, will they discount genuine ministry that Jesus is engaged in because they hadn't seen a diploma or he hadn't received an endorsement from a particular rabbi? I mean, is that really what they're after here? Like, I'm not sure about you, Jesus. You brought this guy back to life from the dead. But did a rabbi authorize that action? Uh, which, which school have you attended? Where did you get ma- your master's degree? Have you even achieved a doctorate yet? Yeah, how, how absurd are these sorts of questions with Jesus? Jesus' mother recognized Jesus' authority. Remember, there at Jesus' first miracle, and Jesus', Jesus mother comes to him and says, Hey, we're out of, we're out of wine. And he's like, hey, What's it to you, woman? It's not my time. And Mary then says to the servants, Do whatever he says. Right? Do whatever Jesus says. And she walks Away, she recognizes Jesus' authority. John the Baptist declared Jesus' authority. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal, he says. Uh, the one coming after me is greater than I, John the Baptist said. Gentiles acknowledge Jesus' authority. Remember the centurion? What a great story that is, right? The centurion says, you don't even have to come to help my servant. I'm one who's in authority. I say something, it gets passed on the line, it gets done. You don't even have to go. I know you can just make this thing happen. Just say the word and it will be, be that way. And Jesus remarks about the centurion's faith. He recognized Jesus' authority to heal his servant. The general populace recognized Jesus' authority. Remember after Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, what is the general response? This guy, this guy teaches different than everybody else. He teaches as one having authority, right? Not like the scribes and Pharisees. This guy teaches as one having authority. Nature recognizes authority. Wind and waves become still when Jesus says, hush. Diseases recognized his authority. They immediately withdrew when healing was pronounced or willed. Demons recognized his authority. Demons cried out, you're the son of God, right? They recognized who Jesus was and his authority. God the Father pronounced Jesus' authority at the transfiguration. Remember, the voice comes from heaven, this is my beloved son. And then the phrase after it, listen to him. Listen to him. This is my beloved son. What further proof was required? How could they ask such a question? What inflated views of themselves are present here? Really, what this is boiling down to is not just, has there been any testimony to your authority? That's so evident. It's all over the place. What a ridiculous question to ask. What they're really asking with this question is, you didn't ask us for permission, Jesus. You didn't come and talk to us. As if they were somehow in charge of things. So how do we expose disingenuous questions? We follow Jesus' pattern. We respond to questions with questions. We respond to questions with questions. And this is how we pick up on the next part of this. Jesus doesn't give them a direct answer, so he doesn't answer them according to their folly. But he does answer them according to folly that they might not be wise in their own eyes. How does he do it? By returning in kind a question for their question. He says, I'll answer your question. I have no problem answering your question. But you'll first answer mine. 
And I love this. They start with the command, answer us, tell us, Jesus. It's an imperative. Jesus responds, answer me, <laughs> tell me. You tell me this, I'll tell you that. Why does this work? Why can Jesus respond to their question with a question and they seemingly take it? Well, first of all, it is helpful to note, just about every commentator notes this, that counter questions were typical for rabbinical discussions. Someone asks a question and they're met with another question. So this is kind of, you know, within cultural, it's culturally normal for this sort of occasion to occur. So that's one thing we can say is that it's not super strange where somebody comes in. Today, it might feel a little bit more strange. We don't typically answer questions with questions, typically. But this is something that was typically done, and so that could be part of it. But I've always kind of wondered, you, know, you look at this text and you go, why didn't the religious leaders just say, well, we asked you first, answer us first. No, we're not going to answer you first. You answer us and then we'll answer you. But they don't, they don't go into any discussion like that. And it started me kind of thinking about that idea in my mind a little bit. What, what is it about us today that like, if someone says something first, that entitles them to whatever it is? Shotgun! And so since I said that, now I'm entitled to the front seat and there's no arguments about it. I, and then what we'll do is we'll argue with one another. Don't you remember? I called it first. And oh yeah, you did call it first. You know, that, what, what is that? Or somebody gets up in the morning... TV channel! And so now they've got the TV channel. And whatever is happening, they get to watch whatever is there. Or the first one to scream out what they want to eat for lunch following church. You know? And I know you all say this. Fellowship lunch! Yeah, okay. So, but, but the first one to say it then gets, gets to rule. Where does that come from? Why does saying something first hold such persuasive power in our minds today? Do we really believe this is how the world should operate? The first one to articulate what they want should get what they want? Is that what we really want? Do we want our kids to learn that? Do you want our kids to grow up learning? Okay, if I'm first to articulate what I want, then I get what I want. I mean, why don't they just wake up in the morning and go, all toys, all food, all best seats. I call them for the day. For that matter, I'll call them for the year. I'll call them for my lifetime. I just get everything the best all the time. I've just called it. Obviously, this all breaks down. But why do we allow that kind of reasoning to, to operate? In other words, here's my point. When we come to this, we go, how can they deal with this? Why don't they just say to Jesus, well, we asked you first. Well, is Jesus under any obligation to answer their question at all? Who are they? Who are they to ask Jesus any question and demand that he respond to them? He's not under any obligation. He says, okay, I'll answer your question, but I'll first, uh, it's intended, you know, that you first answer my question. Calvin says, I do acknowledge that if wicked men lay snares for us, we ought not always to reply in the same way, but ought to be prudently on our guard against their malice, yet in such a manner that truth may not be left without proper defense. Jesus' question is intended to do something very specific, and it accomplishes its goal. And that brings us to our fourth and final moment and lesson. It exposes heart slash mind corruptions. The corruption of these religious leaders' heart is exposed here. And we're granted some, you know, third-person omniscient view on what's going on inside of these religious leaders as they discuss and reason among themselves what they're going to do. What we learn is we learn, for, first of all, 
what was not driving their decision on this matter. How do we know that? We know for certain that what they were after was not the truth. We don't see them sit down and go, okay, now let's rehearse all the things we know about Jesus and his ministry. And let's contemplate what is the reality of that. Or in this case, Jesus asks a question about John the Baptist. They don't sit down and say, have a big powwow about, okay, what do we know about John the Baptist's ministry? <laughs> what did he do? Um, do we really think that, that we should recognize that as being from God? Or is that just some self-made man doing his own thing? They don't have a discussion like that at all. Their concern was not for the truth. They don't consider facts. They don't discuss the implication of those facts. What do they discuss? They discuss consequences. If we answer this way, this is what will happen. If we answer this way, this is what will happen. They're discussing the consequences. They're good Americans. They're pragmatists, right? How is this going to affect me? That's all they're asking. They're not not answering the question honestly. They're just wondering, how is this going to affect us? What response can they give and not lose the argument nor lose popular support? Those are the problems. If they affirm John the Baptist, the, the issue becomes... Well, they know what Jesus will say. He'll say, well, if you think that John was from God, well, then why don't you believe what he said? Well, what was John the Baptist's ministry all about? Well, he was involved in a a ministry of baptism preparing God's people for the Messiah. And then John pointed to him. And who was he? Jesus. So if they say, yeah, John the Baptist was from God, then they have a problem. Because now they just said something about Jesus as well. So they can't say that. But meanwhile, if they say what they really believe, and that is that, Jesus, that John was not from God, they've got another problem on their hands, and that is popular support of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, remember, by this point, has been martyred. He's lost his head. And um, he was well admired and liked by the general populace. And the general populace held him, were convinced that he truly was a prophet. So now if they're found calling the prophet of God not a prophet... The statement made here, we could even be liable to stoning. The people could stone us because we're claiming that a prophet of God was not a prophet of God. Suddenly, this big public moment that they had orchestrated has come back on themselves. Right? It's now come back on themselves. They were looking forward to this big public moment, but now all of a sudden the trap has been sprung and it's them that are in the midst of it. And what we discover is that these chief priests, scribes, and elders are ready to sacrifice truth and integrity on the altar of expediency. They will give up truth in order for what does them best. They don't want to give into the weight of Jesus' ministry by supporting John's ministry. But they also don't want to bring harm to themselves. So what does that lead them to? A lie. A lie. They lie and plead ignorance. They say, we do not know. Now, don't miss this. This is a deliberate claim of ignorance, and it is a lie. They have a belief regarding John, but they're lying by saying, I do not know. Why? Because they want to avoid the plain implication of the facts that are presented to them. They, They punt on the question, right? We don't want to deal with it, so we'll just say we don't know. We discover here that words are just a tool being used by these religious leaders to get what they want. They're not using words as an expression of what is true, good, and beautiful. They are using words as a manipulative device to try to get what they want. And their cunning and cowardice becomes evident when Jesus asks this question. It's the perfect question. 
because it exposes what's in their hearts. I wonder how much agnosticism they claim that we don't know. I wonder how much of that is really not due to someone actually lacking knowledge, but just evading the truth. I wonder how much of it goes that way. Do you have any parents ever experienced this with your kids? Who did this? I don't know. How did all of your crayons land on the floor? I don't know. Why are all of your toys out here? I don't know. Why is the water still running in there? I don't know. It's amazing how all of a sudden everybody doesn't know anything. We can chuckle and then also feel the pain of it because I'm sure we've all been caught in the same duplicity. When we're called to the carpet on something, how often do we want to just say, I didn't know. There might be some occasions in which you are truly ignorant, but we have found a way to be conveniently ignorant at times. And I feel that's what's going on here most definitely. J.C. Ryle says, You must not suppose that unconverted men really believe in their own hearts all that they say. They often feel more than they appear to feel. They often say things against religion and religious people which they secretly know to be untrue. They often know that Christians' life is right, but they're too proud to say so. They often, of the chief priests and scribes, are not the only people who deal dishonestly in religion and say what they know to be false. The ruin of thousands is simply this, that they deal dishonestly with their own souls. Romans 1, 18 through 20 says this very thing, right? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God has made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So very plain. Agnosticism is a convenient ignorance to veil over corrupt hearts. And that's what they're doing here. Calvin says, in this manner, all wicked men, though they pretend to be desirous of learning, shut the gate of truth that they feel it to be opposed to their wicked desires. I won't be led to truth in this matter because I don't like where that's going. So I will stop it before the discussion can get there. That's what they're doing here. They don't want to honestly have a discussion about John the Baptist with Jesus in front of the people. They don't want to have that. So instead they say, we don't know. We see this sort of intellectual dishonesty in huge quantities today. Any of you guys had an opportunity to see the movie Expelled and noted that these college professors were not extended tenure because they put forward the idea that when looking around at the world around us, that it seems to speak to an intelligent design. Now, this we all know, that does not make the person a Christian, right? And that is not like, okay, that's what it required for someone to be a Christian. Not even close to that. They're just making an indication of the same, looking at the world around us, we see its complexity, we see all of the design. It seems that it points to a, some sort of intelligent design. And there have been many that have been expelled from their teaching posts from universities because of making that statement. This shows how the world deals with truth. They're not really seeking truth wherever it is. They come with their own biases beforehand. I noticed this in uh, chemistry class this week. We were talking about dating methods. Um, 
in the very last parts of the chapter, talking about nuclear chemistry and in there, end up talking about radioactive decay and half-lifes and use of this to determine age of the Earth and all the rest. And um, One of the things I just want to say quickly is that all of your presuppositions and worldview biases influence the way you view the details. So someone looks at something and goes, oh, well, look at this percentage of this element is present here, so the world must have been, you know, a billion years old. Well, that's all dependent on the idea that from the start we had all of one pure element that decayed into another one. But what happens if God made that rock with certain levels of quantities of both things from the start? This is the issue, is your presuppositions before you come to the question guide the way in which you interpret the evidence. And there are many because they come to the table from from the start, saying there is no God, then that's what they're going to find, no matter what they find. Because they'll rule out any other explanation, even if it's a better one. Religious leaders expose their unfitness, though, for leadership, no matter what here. Don't miss this. When they punt on this question, they show themselves to be illegitimate leaders. How can they afford to not have a stance on John the Baptist? What good are you guys, right? Here's John the Baptist. He's preaching this, this baptism of repentance. He's engaged in this ministry. He's now been killed, and you don't have any view on him? You don't know what you think about him? How can you say that? What kind of spiritual leadership is this? This passage demonstrates that to some extent the answers we give to questions when they come should be should be fitted to the willingness of the individuals to actually receive truth when it's delivered. Jesus would not deal here with the duplicitous. He's not going to deal with those who are dealing in dishonesty. Here's the reason why. Why ask a question if you don't really care about the truth? Why do you even ask me the question? What is the purpose of a question? Isn't a question offered or given for the purpose of ascertaining what is true and believing that? Moving away from ignorance or error into truth? Isn't that the reason why you ask a question? If that's not the reason why you're asking a question, why are you asking the question? There's some other motive in play. Aren't questions asked so you can move from ignorance to fa- or falsehood to truth? Why speak truth to those who don't care about truth? That's the point. Why are we even engaging in a discussion about truth if you don't care about it at all? You're so quick to remove truth from your answer. What makes you feel like you deserve truth to be given to you? It seems that Jesus' instruction regarding not casting our pearls before swine makes an application here. Dishonest, disingenuous questions deserve special handling. And after all this time, these religious leaders refuse to give a succinct answer regarding John the Baptist's ministry. It's completely a lie. And so they forfeit a direct answer from Jesus. They forfeit it. Jesus says, if you're not going to deal in truth, then I'm not going to answer your question. But I want to close with this other thought. Because Jesus' question is really quite interesting. Some have seen this whole dialogue from Jesus as just a maneuvering tactic. So, he doesn't want to answer the question, so he just maneuvers out of the way and never answers their question. He says at the end, neither am I going to then answer your question. And and certainly, we have a sense in which these religious leaders hang themselves on their own gallows. They make this big public scene, and now they're shown to be the ignorant ones. The ones who come to try to test the credentials of Jesus are the ones shown to be ignorant. So, So this is all come back on their own head, and that's certainly all there. But I think there's much more present here as well. Because Jesus' question is in actuality both a question 
and has an implied answer. This is because Jesus and John found authority in one and the same source. That is God. The religious leaders won't answer this question because they know if they answer this question, they're going to answer their own. If they afford John credibility, then why don't they follow John's endorsement of Jesus? How did John deal with Jesus? He welcomed him warmly, so they would be required to follow suit. And if on this occasion, all of a sudden, the Pharisees who haven't been warm towards John admit that John was actually from God, then the further question comes to them is, well, what made you change your mind? And maybe you're wrong on Jesus as well. All of these things are in the balance for them. Isn't it fascinating that Jesus asked them specifically, not just about John, but about John's baptism? What do you think about John's baptism, Jesus says? Especially since John indicated that the baptism coming from Jesus was even going to be greater than his own. Also, do you remember what happened in connection with the baptism that John had with Jesus? What happened when John baptizes Jesus? Jesus comes up from the water, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove, and God the Father speaks from heaven. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. You want credentials? How about right from the mouth of God? How about a Trinitarian expression of my credentials? There they are at John's, at the baptism that John performed. Jesus' credentials and authority are attested to. Why don't the religious leaders press the matter here? Why do they just give up? Why do they say, I don't know, and they leave the matter alone? I think it's because they see the writing on the wall. They know where this discussion is going. Why don't they just press the matter? We don't know, but still answer us. They know where this is going. They know that Jesus could appeal to John the Baptist, who is the forerunner sent by God, the Father. Jesus had literally, point, literally pointed, John the Baptist had literally pointed to Jesus during his own ministry. There he is. There's the Messiah. There's the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. John announced his own need to decrease while Jesus would increase. He humbly explained that he wasn't even worthy to untie Jesus' sandal. He said that everything must go towards Jesus. There is no way that the Jews could claim that they hadn't been furnished with notice regarding the coming of the Messiah. John the Baptist had been commissioned by God for that very thing. And even the mention of John in front of everyone reminds us all that a prophet's credentials were not founded upon official recognition by the temple priests. Where in the Old Testament do you ever have that? Well, that's not a prophet unless the temple priests have agreed that he's a prophet. Never. Prophets were appointed by God. Their commission was divine in origin. And so, therefore, the priest's rejection of John is an indication that they'll do the same regarding Jesus. You see, Jesus' question doesn't only rebound their question back on them, but he actually points to the answer that he would give. And so the religious leaders hardly bat an eye over lying regarding their spiritual appraisal of John in order to save their own skin. That's what's after, what they're after here. Jesus shows us how we ought to handle dishonest questions, and we certainly can learn from his example. There's an example to be learned from. I've given you four lessons that we can learn from this, and they can be helpful in moments that we have like that. But even more than that, we ought to remember how Jesus always upheld the truth, even when that very fact led him to the cross. You see, the religious leaders would lie to save their own skin. But Jesus upheld the truth, even when that meant the cost of his own life, the laying down of his life, that he might provide us with eternal life.
The good news is this, is that you can look to Jesus with eyes of faith and genuine repentance. And you will see Him who is the way and the truth and the life. And if you come with not dishonest questions, but genuine questions, know this, that Jesus is the answer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for Your grace, mercy, and truth. We thank You for Jesus in whom mercy and righteousness have kissed, which we see both you being the justifier and just in what you have done in saving lost people. Lord, I'm sure that there will be days, perhaps some of us encountered some this week, in which we will deal with dishonest, disingenuous questions. We ask that you would give us wisdom in how we respond to that. That we not be surprised, that we be ready, that we provide an answer or a follow-up question that would expose what's really going on in the heart. Help us to minister and shepherd the hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank You for what You're doing in our midst and we ask that Jesus would be exalted in our church. pray this in His name. Amen.